Kia ora koutou and welcome to New Zealand Anesthesia, the podcast linking Aotearoa anaesthetists with what's going on across the motu and beyond. I am Dr Morgan Edwards, the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists Vice President, and it is a pleasure to host the NZSA's podcast. Whether you're at work, in your office, your commute, or on your daily walk or run, we hope that you find it an insightful and informative listen. Now today on the podcast, we have got Dr. Wayne Morris joining us. Kia ora and welcome to the podcast, Wayne. It is so exciting to have you here. Now you are now the president of the WFSA, which is just a remarkable achievement and so fantastic for anaesthesia globally, but especially in Aotearoa. So congratulations on that. Kia ora, Morgan. Thank you very much. Now, we at the New Zealand Society of Anaesthetists are really excited to see what you achieved during your presidency and would love to hear more about your thoughts, ideas and plans. But first, let's start at the beginning. Now, you work currently at Te Whatu Oro Waitaha, Canterbury, Pānui, but you've spent some time working elsewhere around the world. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey to date? Thanks, Morgan. So I trained in in Christchurch in Melbourne, and I worked at the Alfred in Melbourne for a short time as a locum consultant. And at the end of 1999, I applied for jobs in Christchurch and Fiji. I warned my colleagues back in Christchurch that if I was offered the Fiji job, I'd take that, and that's what happened. I was offered a job in each place, and I decided to take the Fiji job. So my wife Jackie and I decided to move to Fiji for two years and that happened in 2000. We had two boys uh, who were aged four and one at the time, Cameron and Hayden, and my job title was Senior Lecturer in Anesthesia and Physiology. I worked half-time at the Fiji School of Medicine and half-time at the main hospital in Suva, the Colonial War Memorial Hospital spent two years in Suva and then I returned to Christchurch and the time in, in uh, Suva was an amazing experience. Uh, I learned so much about working in a country with limited resources. I learned a lot about teaching and I also met a lot of people from throughout the Pacific because Fiji is a regional training institution. And uh, to, just to add a bit of complexity five weeks after we arrived in Fiji, just as my wife was waving the packing boxes off, there was a coup and the government was held hostage at the, in the parliament complex for about two months. And um, there were a number of violent incidents where people were injured. We saw a lot of patients at the hospital. There was an exodus of staff. And for me, it was like a crash course in, in working in a low-resource setting that was under extreme pressure. But I have to say it was also the most fascinating experience and it was certainly difficult at times, but we got to the end of that two years and I guess it led to more opportunities. It, it opened my eyes to other possibilities in global health work. And Christchurch took you with open arms after all of that anyway? Yeah, surprisingly, I had I had checked with them that I wasn't going to to dirty the nest <laughs> if I chose not to work there. But they did take me back uh, when I re-interviewed a couple of years after the first interview. So it sounds like Fiji was your first sort of major experience. But what 
What triggered that interest in going to Fiji? What triggered that interest in working in global aid? I suppose Jackie and I just had quite unformed ideas about working in a, in a different type of country after I finished my anaesthetic training. We're very lucky in New Zealand and Australia because we have the Pacific countries, our Pacific neighbours on the doorstep and I think there are lots of opportunities for fantastic development work. I also met a couple of colleagues, uh, anaesthetic colleagues when I was working in Australia. One was Hayden Pernt who is from Tasmania and the other person is Steve Kinnear from Adelaide and both Steve and Hayden had worked in the Pacific and when I expressed interest in, in working in a less developed country, they, they encouraged me to apply for a job and actually you know, put, my, put my interest into, into practice. Now, you've had a, a long-standing role working for our Overseas Global Health Committee. What are the particular challenges for Pacific anaesthesia and you know, wider health services in the region? So just a bit about the committee first. So I, the committee was set up in 2010. It was then known, known as the NZSA Overseas Aid Subcommittee. The committee is now called the Global Health Committee. And I think this committee has done some amazing work over the years. The, the committee's worked collaboratively with colleagues in the Pacific, um, mainly the Samoa and the Cook Islands. And it's just done a fantastic job at supporting some of the educational initiatives in the Pacific and, and uh, helping with training. An ex example there would be the Pacific Society of Anaesthetists Annual Refresher Course. And that, until COVID was happening every year, the NZSA committee has supported locums to allow other Pacific anaesthetists to attend the meeting and has also provided lectures to, to go and teach at the meeting. And another fantastic project that uh, I hope most NZSA members are aware of is the Pacific Anaesthesia Collaborative Training Project, PACT. And this gives New Zealand anaesthetists the opportunity just to donate a small amount of money regularly and this project is already having a real impact in assisting with the training of some of our Pacific colleagues. The second part of your question, Morgan, was about particular challenges for Pacific anaesthetists. And this is really interesting because the, and our colleagues in the Pacific share many of the same problems as anaesthetists working in other resource-poor parts of the world. So one of the biggest problem, problems is the lack of um, people the workforce shortages, there's, um, there's limited equipment and medications. A really important issue in the Pacific is professional isolation. And I think just at a system level over the years there's been a real lack of understanding of the role that anaesthesia has in overall healthcare delivery. And we see these same sorts of issues uh, you know, come up time and time again, whether it's the Pacific, whether it's Sub-Saharan Africa, or whether it's Latin America. And then now on to the WFSA. Can you tell us what the WFSA is and who it represents? So the WFSA stands for the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists. 
It's an organisation that was formed in 1955 and it currently has 132 member societies. Most of these are national member societies, but there are a number of regional member societies and an example of that would be the Pacific Society of Anaesthetists that I think represents something like 10 Pacific countries. So overall the WFSA represents anaesthesiologists or specialist anaesthetists in 140 to 150 countries worldwide. Uh, what's really important is the WFSA not only represents anaesthetists in low and middle income countries but we also represent anaesthetists in high income countries and we have an official liaison role with the WHO. That, that means that we can go along to WHO meetings and, and speak on behalf of anaesthesiologists, our specialty and our patients. And it's a unique organisation. There is the obstetric organisation FIGO, but there's no other equivalent surgical mm. organisation to our World Federation. Yeah, wow. And, I mean, you're the longest standing board member now, but how did you first become involved in the WFSA? Well, after Fiji, I, I stayed involved in mainly in medical education in the Pacific. I... Uh, got involved in a course called the Primary Trauma Care course and I went on to co-author a course called Essential Pain Management and that was with Roger Gook, a, a colleague in Perth. Uh, I also did a number of surgical visits in the Pacific but this led to me becoming a member of the Education Committee of the WFSA in 2008. So I went to the World Congress in 2008, which was in Cape Town, and got on to the Education Committee at that, that, that meeting. Then four years later, in 2012, in the Buenos Aires World Congress, I became the chair of the Education Committee. The next four years were incredibly busy. I think we, we did a lot of work to really strengthen some of the educational projects that the WFSA looks after. So in 2016, I then was elected Director of Programs. And uh, in 2020, we were originally going to have a face-to-face -face World Congress in Prague, but unfortunately, because of the pandemic, that became a fully virtual meeting in 2021. But we did have an electronic vote in 2020, and I was elected one of two presidents for the 2000 in 20 to 2024 period. So um, my colleague, Professor Adrian Gelb, who is in San Francisco, has done the first couple of years and I've just taken over on the 1st of July um, from Adrian as WFSA president. Yeah, fantastic. It's absolutely incredible. Now, the immediate past CEO, Julian Gore Booth, has said that a decade ago, the WFSA was struggling to find relevance and is now having a major impact on health globally, including at the World Health Organization, across surgical care as a respected leader, convener, advocate, and educator. What has the WFSA done to make such a significant mark? I think above all, we've, we've found our voice and we've been helped by other organizations and some really important publications that have come out. And a really important public a really important publication was uh, the report of the Lancer Commission on Global Surgery, which uh, came out in 2015, and I was lucky enough to um, 
have a brief speaking role at that launch in London. And that the, the, the headline finding from that uh, commission was that 5 billion out of 7 billion people worldwide do not have access to safe and affordable anesthesia and surgical care when needed. And this is a figure that I think should blow most people away. It's, it's incredible, but that, that's the reality for the vast majority of the world's population. And we're not talking about high-end or complex operations here. We're talking about whether somebody can have safe access to caesarean section, to basic laparotomy operations, to the treatment of an, of, to, and to surgical operations like the treatment of open fracture. And uh, so that happened in 2015. And one of the problems that we've had in, when it comes to anesthesia and surgical care is that we just haven't been recognised as an important part of the global health picture until relatively recently. In, in the early 2000s, uh, Paul Farmer and Jim Kim so wrote an editorial. So Paul Farmer was um, the head of partnerships in health. Uh, unfortunately, he died in Rwanda just a few months ago. But he said that surgery has been described as a neglected stepchild of global health, which is a great quote. And it really hit home, I think, with that messaging that we'd forgotten about surgery and anaesthesia. And a mate of mine called Craig McLean said that if, if surgery is the neglected stepchild of global health, then anaesthesia is his invisible yeah. friend. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's been a, it has been a, an uphill struggle to get some of the global health people understanding the importance of anaesthesia and surgical care. But just to, just to add a little bit more, in 2015, the World Bank also put out a major report, which was called Disease Control Priorities, Essential Surgery, which again talked about the importance of surgical care in, in health systems. And then the World Health Assembly, the, the main meeting of the WHO, unanimously passed Resolution 68.15, which was entitled um, Strengthening Essential and Emergency Surgery and Anesthesia as a Component of Universal Health Coverage. Now this was a game changer for us because really this was the first time that that anesthesia and surgical care had been mentioned in this way. So I, I guess, you know, going back to your question, the, the WFSA has really been a voice for the neglected surgical patient and, and a voice on behalf of our specialty with WHO and, and we really have managed to get some traction over the last 10 years. It's absolutely mind-blowing that prioritising surgical care wasn't included until so recently, isn't it? Correct and I think one of the, the you know, it's interesting what the effect of messaging is at a forum like WHO. So the 5 billion out of 7 billion figures really hit home. Mm. The other one that hits home is when you tell people that surgical disease and trauma accounts for about 17 million deaths per year. If you look at, if you look at um, TB, HIV, AIDS and malaria combined, the number of deaths is, 
is four million per right. year. So surgical disease and trauma really does account for a, a, a huge burden of, of the global burden of Absolutely. disease. How do you see the WFSA evolving in the next 10 years? I think we do need to keep on really pushing the advocacy issues. And, and for me, the, the huge issues are to do with workforce. Uh, we don't have enough anaesthesia providers, whether they're anaesthesiologists, physician specialists, or a, in some countries where they've chosen, chosen to use uh, non-physicians, we don't have enough of that cadre of workforce as well. So it's really pushing the workforce issues and, and making sure that there is giving people the tools and advocating so that there are more resources for increasing the number of anesthesiologists and also making sure the people that are trained get good training so they are, they are safe. Um, the other huge issue at the moment is that we've seen diversion of resources away from non-COVID areas of healthcare during the last last two years during the pandemic and we are very aware in New Zealand of course that surgical operations just aren't being done there's going to be a huge backlog of surgical cases that that are going to need surgery in the next few years or perhaps have have uh, there's going to be worse health outcomes because they haven't received timely treatment and I think what is happening around the world is the situation is a lot worse in many countries, especially the ones with limited resources. We're just, we've just got huge numbers of patients who have not received even the basic surgical care that they require. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a terrifying time. And I mean, currently the solutions that we're coming up with in Aotearoa just seem to be to get the same people to work a lot more um, a lot more out of hours and just a lot of catch up all the time and how that's sustainable or how other countries pivot to fill that gap is. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, in some of the, the countries with limited resources, the, the already small number of anesthesiologists have also been the people that are providing the majority of care for COVID patients and they've been really stretched thin and one big issue for us as an organisation is actually ensuring that we try and protect the welfare of mm. anaesthesiologists around the world. Absolutely. Now it's so exciting for the WFSA to have its first Kiwi president um, and I, I feel like we've touched on this already but you know what are you wanting to achieve in your presidency? Well, I think we do need to carry on with just really pushing those big advocacy messages we need to become more effective. We need to find the messaging that really works with governments and also the WHO. That's the first thing. The second thing is we need to improve the availability of educational resources and training for, for colleagues all over the world. Uh, we've got a number of programs already, like our fellowship program, which offers short subspecialty training placements for anesthesiologists working in low and middle income countries. But we also need to think laterally and be developing the type of educational resources that can be delivered remotely and you know, always ensuring that the resources are appropriate for the context that the, the um, colleague works in. Mm. The, other th the third thing I want to really concentrate on is, is making the WFSA a more diverse and inclusive organisation at all levels 
And with any member organisation, it's always a struggle to to increase, uh, to really achieve really good engagement, but that's a priority for us, that we need to be engaging more with member societies and needs to be really effective two-way communication. And the fourth, last one for me, is that we're looking towards the World Congress in Singapore in mm. 2024. So I certainly want to see a very successful hybrid World Congress in Singapore, and that's in March 2024. And speaking of Congress, I think this is really exciting. Now, there's been some recent changes to the WFSA Congress structure. Can you talk us through these changes? We went through a consultation process last year, and in short, what we did, what we've now decided is that we're changing from a four-yearly face-to-face meeting to a two-yearly hybrid meeting. Another thing that we're doing is changing the World Congress so it alternates between a larger meeting held in a high-income country and a smaller meeting which, is, um, which could be held in a middle-income country. And the third part to this is that there'll be a predictable rotation around five geographical regions. So the Congress will be happening every two years and uh, the plan is after Singapore in 2024, the World Congress will go to a country in Africa or the Middle East. Following that, we already know that in 2028, the World Congress will be in Vancouver. Next up will be a country in South Central and East Africa. Then it'll be Europe's turn. And then finally, in that rotation, it'll be uh, to our region, which was Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific. And the key driver for this, this change in the way we do the World Congress is to increase the opportunities for colleagues all around the world to attend a World Congress, either in person or virtually, you know, and to meet colleagues from all around the world. You know, and I hope, I hope this is exciting for NZSA members because there's going to be more opportunity for us to attend the World Congress uh, in our region and to me the World Congress is a really special meeting like no other meeting there are colleagues from all over the world and you hear a range of opinions uh, you see a range of presentations that are quite different from an Australasian meeting quite different from an American meeting or a European meeting and I find that really exciting. Yeah, cool. And so, I mean, what does this mean for New Zealand anaesthetists? We've just got the opportunity to collaborate on a global scale much more frequently. Yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, I hope that New Zealand sometime in the, in the next decade or two will be looking at, at um, hosting a World Congress. Um, yeah. And I think this new structure will, will make that much easier than in the past. Now, you have achieved so much in your very remarkable career. Um, and I think if I could ask you one last thing, it would be if you could give advice, one piece of advice to anybody listening, now whether they're a trainee, a new fellow, or a more senior anaesthetist who's interested in overseas aid, maybe they're interested in the WFSA, what would that piece of advice be? I think one, the first bit of advice would be to get involved early. <laughs> if you think about it, just, just talk to somebody who's already involved. Uh, Time and time again we hear people who are getting towards the end of their career and they wish they'd 
just acted on their interest earlier. Mm. I think you do need to think outside the square. Uh, I found from my own career choice that going to Fiji for a couple of years actually enhanced my career and it opened up many other opportunities. And I think gone are the days where actually taking time out like this is, is seen as a negative. So I think, think it is important just to think about possibilities and, and perhaps a, a longer term job like, like um, I did over in Fiji for two years. Just, to, just some really simple things can, can be a good entry into this sort of work and uh, I think attending a meeting in a low resource country can be a really way to meet the people, to find out what the issues are that are important to those people. And we've got an amazing meeting in the Pacific region, the Pacific Society of Anaesthetists re annual refresher course, uh, and there, there's an opportunity sometimes to teach at that meeting and also, also just to meet people from throughout the Pacific region. The Papua New Guinean Society holds a meeting in the first week of, week of September and that's also an amazing meeting to attend, but there are many other conferences around the world and they just provide us with a completely different perspective from some of the other meetings we would usually or be more more likely to attend and you know even if you're not interested in in doing some of this work yourself please support PACT. Uh, I'm very grateful for my colleagues in Christchurch who put up with me being away a lot of the a lot of the time doing various teaching and other visits <laughs> and you know sometimes just supporting the activities of your colleagues is, is also hugely important. Yeah absolutely. Well thank you so much for your time today Wayne and I know that I speak on behalf of the New Zealand Society of Anesthetists executive and membership we say we cannot wait to see the things that you achieve in your presidency and also uh, hopefully see you in Singapore. Great, thank you very much Morgan and once again it's, uh, it's uh, thank you very much for inviting me and uh, I look forward to seeing people at the Combined Scientific Congress. <laughs>